now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray. Lord, your word says that all scriptures breathe out by you. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. I pray this morning, Lord, that you open our hearts, you open our minds, you challenge our limited view, the lens in which we see things. I pray for Pastor Tommy as he brings forth this message today. Lord, bless this time, bless this morning our time together as we dive into your word. Amen. Good morning. morning. This morning we are continuing uh, to examine the Gospel of John. Uh, And I want to remind you again that the reason why the book of John is such a powerful um, uh, topic to study is because it gives us the information about the most important topic we could ever study. It's about Jesus. John, as he wrote the book of, of, of John, was for the purpose of saying, I want you to know this is who Jesus is. I want you to know that this is what Jesus came to do. I want you to know Jesus. And so as we go through this, what we're doing is we're seeing John revealing the nature of Jesus, of who he is, of what he came to do. And that's why this is really worthy of our time and worthy of our study. Today's um, story that Ernie just read um, is, um, is the same thing. It's along the same lines. It is about revealing to us who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. And today's text, I think, contains a story that, um, that is fascinating on its face um, and profound when you dig deeper. For many of us, we read this story and we understand it on, on a real surface level and we see it as a, a, a really interesting interaction that Jesus Christ has with people, uh, whether it's his mom or whether it's his bride and groom or whether it's, whether it's the, the host of the, of the feast. It's an inter- in- interesting interaction that Jesus Christ has as he's moving forward. But really what we're seeing here is uh, Christ stepping into the, the consciousness of his community. He's stepping in and saying, I am here and I am and I'm here for a reason and for a purpose. To this point, Jesus Christ kind of grew up and he grew up in relative anonymity. He grew up as as the son of a as as the son of a um, carpenter and kind of kind of in semi-poverty but kind of lower middle class. And then as he was baptized, as we read, as he stepped into the Jordan River, that was kind of the beginning of there's something special here. This was declared by John the Baptist, and he looked at him, and he, and, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so this was kind of the start of Jesus coming out. And he moved from that into, into being introduced to disciples and calling disciples to follow him. And so now in chapter 2, 
we see Jesus kind of stepping in. And in this, he's trying to declare something about himself. He's trying to say something about who he is. After all of the events, he steps in, and this is the way the story goes. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding and his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I want to stop there because I've always loved that exchange. I've always loved that interaction between Jesus and his, and his mom because to me it's like a very real moment. It reminds me of what it was like for me to grow up. Now, I don't know if everybody's household was the same as an Italian household. But it was very common for my mom to ask me to do things and for me to say something along the lines of, Ma, that's got nothing to do with me. And it was also very common for mom not to take no for an answer, which is what we see here, right? We see there's a problem that arises, and she goes to her son, and she says, she says, hey, they don't have wine. Now, just that in and of itself is, to me, a really fascinating idea, because if you think about this, she goes to Jesus and says they don't have wine. Now, we know that Jesus isn't a wine supplier, right? We know he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't have, have a liquor store somewhere, and so she's going to him and saying, hey, can you go? We know he doesn't have a bunch of money to be able to go out and buy all this wine to bring it back. So there's something very interesting about Mary's expectation about Jesus that she's bringing to this request, right? Think about it. It must have been really interesting raising Jesus, right? So she's sitting there, and she's like, she's like, we don't have wine. And she's like, oh, okay, cool. I've got a son, Jesus, and he'll provide it for them miraculously. That's what's... That's, that's the only reason, like, like if we're like at a, if I'm at a wedding with my mom and they run out of wine, my mom doesn't come up to me and go, Tommy, it's time for you to take care of this. So something had to happen in the raising of Jesus that made Mary have this expectation that Jesus could do something miraculous in this moment. And I've often thought, what could possibly have happened as he's growing up that would show them that, that would teach her that idea? Like, was it like, 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 it was time for him to go to school, and he didn't have his diorama yet done, and so, like, magically there'd be a diorama there, and she'd walk in, and like, oh, you can just produce things out of nothing. Like, the, the upbringing that Jesus would have had taught Mary that when something was needed, miraculous, Jesus would be able to provide it. And so she went to him and said, they're out of wine. And she had this expectation that Jesus would do something, and Jesus, like every good son, says, I don't want to do anything right now. But she didn't take no for an answer, and she had an expectation for Jesus to fulfill. Now, I've, I, I, all, over the years, I've always found people that they, they really kind of wrestle with this. They really kind of struggle with this. It's even Bible college. It's like back and forth because Jesus says to her, but woman, it's not my time yet. And yet, Jesus then goes and does it. And everybody's like, well, that's kind of weird because Jesus makes a declaration that this isn't his time yet. And and so, like, like, is he, like, was he, like, just testing her, or was he just, like, did he go against, like, the father's will? Like, what was going on here? And I really find that that wrestling to be um, um, unnecessary. I think what we see here 
is something that we know already about what we've been taught as it relates to making requests of God. We know that, that, that we can go to God and our requests make a difference, right? Prayer changes things, right? Prayer moves the hand of God. Making requests of God from a sincere heart within the, with, within the, within the context of God's, God's permissible will moves things, right? Jesus tells the story about the, about the unjust judge and, and how the woman would, would went to him over and over and over and over again. And so he encourages us to go back to God over and over and over again. As if, if we didn't, things wouldn't change. And so what you basically have here is you have an interaction in which, in which Jesus says, well, this isn't, this isn't exactly what my plan is. And she comes and says, no, we're going to do something here. We need you to move. We need you to do something. For a lot of us, what we need to understand is there is, a, there is a perfect will of God and there's a permissible will of God. And within the permissible will of God, we can move the hand of God as we are, are acting in faith, as we are praying in faith, as we are seeking him in faith. And so what I see here is not anything that's that, that difficult to understand. Jesus is like, well, I'm, I, this, isn't my, this isn't the plan, this isn't what, what, what my time at this point. And she says, no, I want to keep coming back to you because we have a problem here we need it to be solved. And what God does in this, what Jesus does in this, within obviously his permissible will, is he uses it to reveal himself. I want to remind you what I said earlier, that on the surface this is a fascinating story, but as you press in deeper, it becomes deeply profound. It's the same thing that happens in our lives. When... When, when we find ourselves in a situation and we begin to seek God's face for it, we begin to ask him to move, and we begin to ask him to do something, and therefore we move the hand of God, the miraculous of God, he uses that to reveal something profound about himself. This is the truth. Now, this is the understanding that we need to have. It's always about God revealing himself. It's always about God being magnified. It's always about God being glorified. Even when we come in and we pray, God, I need your healing here. The primary reason for God's healing is not simply so that you will be healed, but that the glory of God is revealed in your healing. He's about showing himself. He's about revealing himself. And so within this exchange, that's what takes place. Mary comes to him with a particular need, a particular concern. And she, just like the just like the, the, the widow who goes to the unjust judge, doesn't take no for an answer. And because she doesn't, Jesus responds. And ultimately what Jesus does in that response is reveal something about himself. Something deeply profound. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn it out knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and, and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. What we have here is we have the description of something that in our time, if we read it, we wouldn't really grasp, we really wouldn't understand. 
The description here is the jars of purification. The jars of purification were used specifically for a rite of, of um, preparation for the meal or to purify yourself prior to the meal. All throughout, all throughout the Jewish religion, there, were, there was um, tradition, um, there, were, um, uh, there were acts that were traditional as you would walk through that related to their relationship with, with God. And, and when you would come to a point of eating and they would sit down and they would have a feast, it was the idea of you need to cleanse yourself. You need to, you need to purify yourself. It was the way in which you would wash. And there was a specific way in which you would wash and specific, uh, specific means by which you would do it. Because what you were saying was, I'm, I am unclean and I am being made purified before I sit and eat. So what you were talking about here is these jars of purification. They were, they were a part of the rites of of the Jewish faith. They were part of what it took to be religiously right before God as a result of the Old Covenant. It was described in the Old Testament. It was, it was the means by which they would become pure. And so what we're describing here is the, the jars that were used as a part of the Old Covenant, as a part of the means by which they would be cleansed and they would be purified. And so Jesus says, what I want you to do is I want you to take these jars and I want you to fill them all the way up. What is it? Where does he say he fills them to? Fills, fills them all the way to the brim, right? He fills them all the way to the brim. And, and, um, and as he fills them to the brim, there's something that takes place. Fills them to the brim, and then he says, draw out the water. Let me ask you a question. If you fill something to the brim, what happens if you go back into the jar? It'll overflow, right? It'll spill over. Which means what we've done right now is we've created a situation in which it would be very, very difficult to continue to draw out something for, for the entire wedding feast, right? So every time you go into it, whatever you're drawing in, the thing would just kind of pour over. Now, it's interesting because John specifically states this idea. It's full all the way up to the brim. I think when you, when, you, when you have that picture, when you have this idea that he fills it all the way to the brim and then he goes back into those jars to draw out the water, we have the wrong idea of what took place. And as a result of that, we miss out on the profound statement that Jesus Christ is making in response to the request of Mary. And let me explain what I mean by that. In fact, let me have D.A. Carson explain to you what I mean by that. Westcott and one or two others have rightly insisted that the verb draw, antileo, is commonly used for drawing water from a well. In other words, the water turned into wine was freshly drawn from the well after the water jars had been filled up. Up to this time, the servants had drawn water to fill the vessels used for ceremonial washing Now they are to draw for the feast. This is where the story goes from fascinating to profound. So what did I just just described in the words of D.A. Carson there? What D.A. Carson is saying is, he says, what happened is the ceremonial jars were, were taken from the water, the water was taken from the well, and they filled up the ceremonial jars to completion, to fulfillment. To the top. 
And then Jesus said, I want you to go now and I want you to draw new water. I want you, the word that's used here, the word that's used here is specifically chosen to describe drawing something out of a well. It's not about dipping into a pot. It's not about, it, it's not about taking something out of the pot. So the description here is that he filled up the ceremonial jars to completion, to the top, until they were finished. And Jesus said, now go back, go back to the well and now draw out some water. And what he drew out of that well at that point was this new wine. Was this good wine? Was this right wine? Jesus Christ, in this act, is making a declaration about who he is. By filling the jars to such large capacity to the brim, it's indicating that the time of ceremonial purification is completely fulfilled. The new order, symbolized by the wine, could not be drawn from the jars that are so intimately connected with the needs of the law. Of the old covenant. In other words, Jesus at the outset of his ministry is declaring in no uncertain terms the old means of cleansing by the old law is complete, fulfilled, done, and I am bringing something new. The act here is that Jesus is making a declaration about what he came to do what he's about to perform, what he's about to bring forth. And he's saying, listen, guys, it's not about being cleansed by the old law any longer. I am here to do a new work. I am here to provide a new cleansing. I am here to do something special. Now, with that in mind, I want you to consider these words again. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So to this point, what we receive from this passage is Christ is saying, the cleansing by the means of the old covenant is completed. There is something new that I am bringing. There is something new that I am going to perform in your cleansing, in your purification. And the master of the feast says, everyone serves the good wine first and then the poor. But you have kept the good. You have kept the better until now. He's declaring in this declaration that, that, the, that, that the latter is better than the former. Now before I explain further how better this new covenant is that is being declared by this act of Christ in replacing the old. I want to remind you again about what we've already learned, about what's already been declared in the book of John, about the work of Christ, about who he is and what he came to do. Because as we talk about this, we're just in the second chapter, we begin to see a theme unfolding. Remember what we learned in chapter 1, verse 16? In chapter 1, verse 16, the declaration is made, For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
Do you remember when we talked about this a couple weeks ago? And how we talked about the idea that essentially the declaration here is that God has been replacing grace with grace, grace upon grace, grace upon grace, grace upon grace. And that John's declaration is God had an act of grace in the giving of the law. That God was, through Moses, was making this declaration that I'm going to provide a way between, for, for you as sinners to come to me. And so by the law, that would be God's grace to the Israelites. That there would be a chosen people that he would save. And he would say, through these means, I want to provide a way. But ultimately, because they couldn't keep the covenant, because they couldn't be holy and pure by, by the law alone, he extended his grace in truth through Jesus Christ. The declaration in that is John saying that the, that, that, that the latter is better than the former. That the grace of God has come now through Jesus Christ. And that he is now the fulfillment of the law. That he is now the perfecting of the law so that we might have a relationship with the Heavenly Father. We, we read just last week in, in how... In, in how John the Baptist declared about Jesus, he says, listen, we do this water baptism, we do this baptism in water, and if you remember last week we talked about it, it wasn't something that John invented, this is something, this is something that was a part of, of, of Jew, the Jewish rites of their religion, of being cleansed, of being clean. And he says, he, he says, I baptize in water, but there is one who is coming who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. Right? So what have we got so far? So far what we've got is, is there was grace given by God, but Jesus Christ is the perfection of that grace. There is a cleansing in, in baptism, but Jesus Christ is now going to come and bring the Holy Spirit so that you'll be baptized and cleansed by the fire. And now what we have is this declaration is, yes, there were rites of purification that were taking place, but there is a new wine coming. There is a new covenant coming. This is the theme of John, and I want to remind you again, the reason we're studying John is because it tells us about the nature and the work of Jesus Christ. And what we know so far is Jesus Christ is doing a new work that makes us right before God. Somebody should have said amen there. Right? This is what we know about the work of Jesus Christ. That he has come to do something new and something better. And in this case, in this case, it foreshadows something specific. Specifically, Jesus is saying, the purifying, the cleansing is complete. What does that mean? What, is, what does it mean as they're, as they're talking about from the Old Covenant, the idea of purification, the idea of being made pure and made clean? It's really about this idea of being able to come into the presence of God. So the whole, the, the, the whole context of this is we serve a holy and pure God. And because we in ourselves cannot be made right, just because we in ourselves are in sin, there are acts of purification that need to be made so that we can be presentable to God. So that we can be in his presence, so that so we can be received by him. And so Jesus here is he's talking specifically about the rite of purification. And he's saying, 
this is a very different season now as it relates to the purification. So there is something very new about us being made clean. And the book of Hebrews explains how profound this cleansing is. Turning to Hebrews chapter 8, the author of Hebrews states in verse 6 that Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. The covenant that he mediates is better than the old covenant, he says. And from there he quotes Jeremiah and the actual words of God as it relates to the covenant. Behold, the days are coming when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, say, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me for the, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Now that last line is important as it relates to the story we just read and as it relates to what we're about to read. Again, this whole thing is about the, the, the purification, the cleansing, to making right so you can enter into the presence of God, so you can be in communion with God. And so he goes in and, and, and he quotes Jeremiah, where Jeremiah is quoting God himself. And God says, I am going to make a covenant, a new covenant. And it's not going to be like the covenant before, because the covenant before they couldn't keep. There was, there, was, there was purification laws, there was sacrifice laws, there was things that they had to do over and over and over again. And they kept falling back in the sin, and they kept falling back in the sin, and they kept falling back in the sin, and they rejected me. But I am going to make a new covenant, and it's a covenant that will be written on their hearts. It's a covenant that will take hold of them and control them. It will be something that is so beyond what they can do in and of themselves. I will remember their sins no more. I will make them pure. Their iniquities will be set aside. And therefore they will be able to come into my presence. That's what the author of Hebrews continues with in chapter 9. He says, now the first covenant had regulations for wor worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which, where the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was the second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all the sides with gold, in which the gold urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. He's starting in here and he's describing what it was like to concentrically enter into the presence of God. So he describes here this idea of worship. And he says to kind of come into the presence of God, there was, there was the temple built. There was the tent that was built when they, were, when they were wandering and ultimately the temple that was built by Solomon. 
And he said, concentrically, there was a way in which you would enter in closer, closer, closer into the presence of God. Now, there was the most holy place that's mentioned here, the Holy of Holies, which is where once a year the very presence of God would come. And there was nobody, no matter what you did, no matter what ceremony you went through, no matter what sacrifice you made, there was nobody in, amongst the commoners who could enter into the presence of God because they couldn't get clean enough. You could, have, you could have as many jugs of water as you want. You could make as, as many sacrifices as you want. The, the common person could not enter in to the very presence of God to worship. How many of you, you're glad that you can enter into the presence of God and worship this morning? What, they, the per, common person couldn't. There was one person who could enter in, and that was the high priest. And the high priest had to go through all of this ceremony. The high priest had to go through all of these sacrifices for that one day to go into the presence of God. And he was still not considered for sure clean enough. Because he would go in there, and he would have to go in there, and he'd go in with bells on the bottom of his, uh, of, of his robe and a rope tied around his ankle so that if he walked into the presence of God and wasn't clean enough he would, and, and died, they'd hear that the, they would hear that the bells weren't ringing anymore and they could pull him out. That's the holiness of our God and the filthiness of ourselves that prevented us from being in the presence of God. This is what Hebrews is describing here. He's saying in that old covenant, this is the separation we had because we weren't clean enough. As you hear that unfolding, do you understand the, the profound nature of Jesus filling up those, those, those um, jars for purification and saying, it's full. It's complete. It's over. But Hebrews continues on and says, this is the way it was. This is how hard it was to come into the presence of God. How uh, the steps we had to take to be made pure and to be made right, just to get a little touch, a little taste. But then he says, Christ appeared. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is the fulfillment and the completion of what Jesus Christ foreshadowed at the wedding feast of Cana. That he would come and purify us. That he would come and he would make us whole. That our sins, our iniquities would be washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, we would be able to come into the presence of God and know him. 
Not because we were good enough, not because we did enough things, but because Jesus Christ himself, while we were yet sinners, died for us. That Jesus Christ, before we loved him, he loved us and he gave himself so that those who believe on him, that those who put their faith in him, those who trust in him, may have their sins washed away, they may be purified, and they can come into the presence of the Most High King. This is what Jesus was saying about himself. That each one of us has this ability, not in and of ourselves, but because of what he has done. For many people, we have a wrong view of what Christianity really is. We have been purified by the work of Jesus Christ to serve the living God. We have been purified to enter into his presence. We have been purified to worship him. We have been purified not by a ceremony, not by water, not by continual sacrifices, not even by doing the right thing over and over again and not sinning, but by Jesus Christ himself dying for us. And all we do is we receive that and we accept that and we are made clean. As I say, so many people have a wrong view of what it is to be a Christian. Listen, I don't get my salvation because I don't do this and I do do that. I don't, I don't earn my salvation. I don't get my salvation because I follow a, a set of laws and a set of rules that makes me right before God. Jesus Christ reveals himself to me as the sacrifice who makes me pure. And as he reveals himself to me and draws, my, draws me to him, I, my eyes are open. And I realize that he is my hope, that he is my life, and I give my life to him. At that moment, I am made pure, not because of me, but because of Jesus. I have been given entrance into his presence, not because of me, but because of Jesus. And I don't have to do anything else to earn that. I don't have to do anything else to, to be made right before God. That, that makes, it, makes it available for me to walk through those back doors and come here and sense the presence of God and worship Him. I don't have to do anything else. But I want to. But I desire to. Because Jesus Christ gave it all for me that I may come into the presence of God. And so I want to live right before him. I want to I I follow his pathway. I want to be what Christ has designed me to be so that I may live in him. None of this is about earning anything because Jesus made me pure. The, the jars are full and set aside. And the blood of Jesus Christ makes me right. This is what is revealed about the work of Jesus Christ. And I want you guys to understand something else about the depth of that. We get to enter the presence of God. In his presence is fullness of joy. In his presence is peace everlasting. In his presence is forgiveness. In his presence is wisdom and comfort, and hope, and life. I could never receive that from him because of what I've done. But I'm able to enter the presence of Jesus Christ, the presence of the most heavenly God, the presence of the holiness of the holy, and receive from him what this world can never give me. Not because of me, but because of Jesus Christ. 
you understand the great gift given to us? How blessed we are as we receive him. Jesus Christ is declaring about himself on that day that you can enter into the presence of God and be loved, be accepted, be comforted, receive wisdom, worship him wholly and completely because of what I've done. Christ made the way. The best is last. And it's here right now. It's what we get to live in as we give our lives to him. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, this is what you have in him. You get the joy of coming into his presence. Even if you look at your life and you realize that there's sin in my life, you get the joy of coming into his presence and saying, Father, forgive me. I'm so sorry that, I, that I've been making this choice instead of that choice. Please come and work in my heart. I want to love you more deeply so that my sin fades away. I want to know you more closely. That I might be right before you in the way in which I live and I act because I love you because you first loved me. We have the opportunity to come and worship him like no one before us because of the work of Jesus Christ. The latter is better than the former and it's here for us this morning. Heavenly Father,